So it gives me great pleasure to be able to welcome my guest today, and not just because he's head coach for GB Snow Sports, but because he's someone who I've known for 20 years and who I've had the pleasure of watching his rise through the industry from ski bum to respected freestyle coach whose protégés have won medals at every competition up to and including the Winter Olympics. So I'm delighted to welcome my guest today, Pat Sharples. Yeah, really good to catch up, especially after such a long time. Yeah, and thanks for joining us today. Where are you joining us from today, Pat? I'm uh, currently at home, uh, living in Livam St. Anne's now, so just on the same coastline as Blackpool. A uh, beautiful place here with my wife and my two kids. Excellent. And um, let's start off with a traditional question we like to ask all of our guests. When did you last go skiing? Oh, actually, it wasn't that long ago. Um, it was only a few weeks ago, but in Kazakhstan, of all places. Wow. Okay. Uh, first time I'd ever been there. Um, it was Kazakhstan was exactly as I expected it to be or I envisioned it to be. The ski resorts were amazing. Absolutely brilliant. Really loved it. Was that for an event or on the tour or something? It was. It was actually um, the uh, Mogul and Aerials World Championships. Um, they, they moved it there at the last minute. So, um, yeah, okay. it was a bit of a surprise trip, but it was absolutely fantastic. How did that go for the team? It, it did really. Yeah, it was really good. Um, I was there with our Mogul team and um, we got some really good results, especially uh, Thomas Gherkin Schofield, who got a sixth yeah. place in the dual Moguls. Um, and his sister Michaela did incredibly well. That that whole team's like, you know, exploding at the moment. I think they're really going to shine over the next sort of eight years or so. Um, and uh, Lloyd Wallace was there from Aerials, who also performed really yep. well and made the finals. So, yeah, great trip. Great. Well, that's that's very uh, exciting and interesting that you were there because um, we'll talk about moguls a little later on because I seem to remember that was one of your early specialities. Um, but, you know, I referred in my intro to the fact that we've known each other a long time. I'm pretty sure I first met you back in Courcheval when I was running uh, Natives, when you were kind of ripping up the slopes in the Three Valleys. Can I ask, let's, let's go back a little bit. How did you end up in Courcheval and how did you get into skiing? It was, uh, I got into skiing when I was probably around about seven years old. And uh, my dad used to take me to the dry ski slopes, Rosendale Ski Slope in Lancashire. Um, and just sort of fell in love with it. Uh, I used to just be very playful on my skis, did some of uh, the alpine training, really enjoyed all the summer race leagues. Used to play around with a bit of freestyle, even ski ballet. <laughs> um, <yeah>. <laughs> just anything <laughs> just anything that I could do on my skis it was fun um, and then when it came to you know when I was getting to about 16 15 16 and uh, I, I wanted to continue skiing but I didn't I couldn't afford to sort of go away or compete on the alpine circuit or anything so it was then that um, I decided I would go and try and find a job in the in the Alps and uh, I actually got a job lined up <clears throat> through a friend um, as a ski technician in uh, Champagny uh, by La Plang. And um, yeah. I got there and I was, but the, the, uh, uh, my boss was, thought I was 18 and sp speak fluent French. And I was actually 16 and I couldn't speak French. And I looked about 13. Um, so <laughs> as soon as I got there, he was like, that, that's, that's not happening. So uh, I didn't want to go home. So I actually just uh, I saw people were hitchhiking. So I hitchhiked to my uh, the next resort or uh, where this person was going who picked me up, which happened to be Cauchaval. 
they were going to Karshaval 1650. They dropped me there and I ended up living there for 12 years. 12, 12 years. But when you when you were living there, I seem to recall that initially you didn't actually have anywhere to live. You're kind of uh, making it up as you were going along. Yeah, it was. Um, <laughs> I think I was probably the only homeless person to be living in a ski resort, maybe. Um, yeah, I got there and I, and I didn't have any money um, or hardly any money. And um, I, I've managed to sort of when I started asking around for work again, people weren't taking me seriously. I looked way too young, couldn't speak French. Um, however, I've managed to find a sneaky little spot in the uh, in the lift office where uh, I could go and put my head down. And it, and it sounds really bad that I was living rough there as a young kid, but it actually wasn't as bad as it sounds. You know, I, I felt safe all the time. It, it didn't feel any big deal. It's hard work carrying all my ski stuff around all the time everywhere. Um, but then, were you, gradually... were you not very very cold? No, no. Like, you know, the the, the lift stations in Korshavala are actually really nice and quite warm. <laughs> but um, I, uh, uh, yeah, people started seeing me around and think almost felt sorry for me and started giving me bits of work, you know, washing up, cleaning beds, uh, clean toilets. And eventually a company called Ski Olympic, they, they took me in um and uh they gave me a lift pass they gave me a place to uh, give me a bed and it was like you know i'd got everything then it was incredible yeah great and i, I think i remember that ski olympic place it's sort of right in the there was a big hotel there right in the center of 1650 is that where you were living yeah yeah rocky's bar rocky's bar hotel les avals and uh, once I worked out there, there was a TV lounge as well. So I sort of upgraded from the lift pass office to sneak in the TV lounge. So uh, <laughs> that was even more comfortable. So I did that for a couple of weeks as well. <laughs> Great. And obviously you must have, you know, you were in Courcheval, you were keen skid, done, you know, well and done racing, et cetera. But were you doing kind of moguls at one stage and then somehow that transitioned into the sort of freestyle scene? I, I did. So when um, I uh, every day I could go skiing from 12 o'clock, you know, we'd finish all our jobs and we'd go skiing. And that's when, you know, I, everything really opened up to me. I could ski the whole mountain um, started skiing in the backcountry a lot. But um, that season there was the, the snow wasn't that great and there was just moguls everywhere. And I just loved it. I just continued to ski moguls every day from the moment I got on skis to the moment the lifts closed. Um, six days a week. I wasn't allowed to ski on Saturdays. We were too busy. And um, it, that then progressed into doing some local competitions and then realizing to myself, I'm, I'm like quite good at doing this and maybe I should pursue this further. And that's when I started looking about going to the, the national championships um, and seeing if I could work it up on the international circuit. So that really kickstarted from there and just happened naturally. And and that, if I recall correctly, then there was a series. I've actually got a flyer in my uh, study here somewhere, uh, which was called the I think it was the Shaker in Meribel. And then they had one in Verbier as well and one in Val d'Isere, a series of mogul competitions. Is is that what you were doing? Yes. Oh, God, these memories. It's so good to talk through all this, Ian. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that was in 1996 and it was the European Mogul Challenge Tour. There you and go, the, yeah. uh, the Shaker was the grand finale. That was in <clears throat> Maribel. And there was other ones in Verbier. 
Chamonix and I think it was Carmaye. So it was it was spread out over five or six weeks. And uh, I was on the podium pretty much every single one going into the finals. And I'd been like third or second in ones and I was desperate to win one and win the overall tour. And that was in Meribel, which was just over the other side of the valley from Cocheval. So it felt like I was on home turf. But um, I, when I won that, um, I remember that opened up like a whole new world for me. It, that sort of was my first step to becoming a professional skier. And it was all televised. It was all on Sky. Uh, Matt Chilton was doing the commentary. He did a huge yeah. piece on me. And that sort of opened the doors. I, I, I got then sponsored by um, Oakley um, and Solomon. And, you know, they were providing me with all the kit. It, it, was, it was just an amazing time. And and that was it. I was hooked in then and thought, right, maybe I should continue to pursue moguls and, and maybe give the uh, the all Olympics a go. Uh, but at the same time, I was generally as excited about skiing the backcountry and the free riding was coming in. And, you know, it was just a really exciting time to be in the ski industry. Yeah, actually, I've managed to find it. I'm just going to hold it up, see if you can see it now. That is a flyer for the European Mogul Challenge for 1995. Uh, wow. Sponsored by sponsored by Highland Spring, Black, Strambui, Mark Warner, and White Stuff, uh, and it's got a picture of Richard Gay. He must be one of the guys you were coming up against in some of those races. Yeah, he he actually won a medal. I think he won a medal in the Olympics. I can't remember which one it was. He got a bronze medal, but he was he was a top guy. Um, yeah, at that time. It also says there's a prize fund as well. So you winning cash for those races as well. Yeah, I did. I, I did win some cash. And they used to get, there's so many prizes that you, they used to give you as well. Like you said, it was sponsored by White Stuff and Drambuie. So I used to leave with all of these goodies. And then I used to go back to Carcheval to see my friends and used to be throwing out, you know, all, all the freebies that I'd sort of won to them or, you know, swapping them to pay my bar, bar tab off and stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> that, that that that's brilliant in fact it's interesting i i um spoke to uh, martin bell a little while ago and he suggested to me that there's actually more money in uh, british skiing and ski racing back then in that in that era when drambui etc and other uh, sponsors were putting money into it than there is now where it's uh you know it's thinner on the ground and harder for uh for competitors to get by i think it's just different i think the for Alpine, I think, yeah, they were they were the glory days for sure. Um, within freestyle, there really wasn't that much. Um, but that was a very specialised event. It wasn't a part of the Olympic circuit. You know, the the rules were slightly different for the judging. So it, it was a little bit different. So it wasn't loads of money. Um, <laughs> no, hardly any at all, really. It yeah. certainly could fund what I was doing, but it definitely helped. Yeah, well, you know, I took part in the Shaker uh, a couple of times and it is so long ago that I was doing a heli rather than a 360. <laughs> and that was my that was my biggest achievement to be able to do that uh, once. And it was actually um, Big Mac, Ian McCloskey, who taught me how to do that. You know him? I do. Yeah. Legend of Maribel. Exactly. So you mentioned then that you ended up being sponsored by uh, Oakley and Salomon. And I'm pretty sure that probably led to the next stage because Salomon brought out that uh, revolutionary uh, twin tip ski, the 1080. And I imagine you probably got hold of one of those quite early on. I, I did. I was actually the first people that Salomon sponsored for the, for the new free ski movement was myself and Jim Adlington, the founder of Planks. 
Yeah, and, funny uh, enough, I had that on my uh, on my notes here because he went through a similar journey over in Val d'Isere being a ski bum. And I think he told me that the Salomon guys came out and he saw these skis in the in the locker room and said, I've got to get me a pair of them. <laughs> yeah, that was it. He was. Jim was almost doing very similar thing to I was, but over in Val d'Isere and there was Dave Young over in Teens. There was Jamie Strachan in Chamonix. We were all sort of doing our things in our different resorts, um, and and it was great because we would link in now and again as well. But um, the the whole bit with uh, the uh, 1080, the first ever twin tip, it came at a really big time or important time of my life because I'd blown my knee out my, for the set or my second knee out. Um, knew I wasn't going to hit it for the Olympics. I was not even thinking about continuing after I'd uh, done my rehab for my knee. Um, it just didn't excite me anymore. But the new wave of free skiing really did. And again, the backcountry, not just the freestyle. And Solomon were so supportive as well as uh, Oakley. And they were saying, you know, just focus on this. It's it's not even about the competitions. You know, we can just use you for media coverage, for photo shoots, for filming, demos, and what led into being what I'm doing now within the coaching side of it. I was going around and coaching the uh, um trying to mentor the next generation and solomon were really encouraging to help me do with all this yeah okay well we'll move on to that coaching side of things but just in that era there you said that you know they were looking for you to uh you know just to just to help them you know generate a good coverage and i think um there were a number of events you did in that era that sort of time and um including going up to to sweden and taking part in one of john olsen's events Yes, actually, <laughs> I, I I went there, uh, but I was actually commentating. I, I wasn't I wasn't at that level right. in the freestyle side to actually sort of go there and and compete. Um, I but I did go there to the yeah you and Olsen's event. I did the commentating, and again with all the world's best. So I was very much a part of that scene. Um, I um, again a lot of the stuff that I did I still did some competitions I did a lot of the free ride competitions within around the free valleys um over in uh, over in teens and any sort of local sort of big air competitions so I would mix it all around and then every year obviously a big one was the London ski show to go and do the yeah. demos with all yeah, the British shows. that that was that was a huge part of what we did um because it was you know we were in that limelight for those 10 days and the ski show back then as you'll remember was just it was crazy they put us up at the hilton hotel we'd get you know paid very very well i remember for about three or four years i could do a whole winter season on the money that i would earn just from that ski show within like 10 days <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean that's amazing isn't it what is it a surprise that it's not around anymore or is it actually just the fact that you know in those days there was uh you know it's pre-internet there were more people who were going along to the ski show making their decisions there but that's probably one to uh to answer for uh, another time but just it's quite a good transition actually because you talk about the the demos and you mentioned the coaching that you were doing with um with salomon and you know warren smith uh, is another um early pioneer on the on the free ride side of things and he was organizing his ride events over in verbier and getting free riders and then that freestyle term didn't really come in until a little bit later i think and you ended up joining forces with him to work on the british free ski camps was that the first step for coaching it was absolutely and you know warren's definitely a big part of uh of my of my story and uh 
Um, it was oh, just such amazing times. So it was Warren was the brainchild of coming up with the um, concept of the first ever British free ski camps, and um, it was more targeted at uh, students. And it was in the summer. It was in teams. And Warren was very much still focusing on, you know, the technical coaching, instructing side of skiing, but very passionate about free skiing, like the backcountry, and but wanted to somebody to sort of oversee the sort of freestyle side. So I, I took that on. Um, I think Warren at the time was sponsored by Solomon as well. So it fit in really, really well. And the camps were a huge success and they progressed, you know, and got more people, got more interested in it. And then we moved them to Sass Fay because the the parking teams were getting a little bit tired and the one in uh, Sass Fay was it was just incredible at that time it was a great resort there was a lot of things to do you know after skiing uh, which you need to do when you're running camps like that there needs to be lots of activities um you know skate parks trampolines crazy golf you know all of that and Sass Fay sort of could accommodate everything there and the camps got more and more popular and we ended up starting running about three or four weeks every summer um and that's when we started seeing the next generation who would go on to be the big sort of stars within the british ski and snowboard industry so it was that was a real exciting time and that's when british free skiing was absolutely thriving yeah absolutely and it was you know as um, my time during natives were involved in helping to promote that and i went out to sasfe last summer for skiing myself and i can totally see why you know it would offer a, a lot for a group of young people plenty going on there eventually you moved on through salomon to setting up your own series of of uh, coaching which were the salomon grom camps how did, yeah. how did that come about the when um, I was getting to my sell-by date as a professional skier, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I was sort of looking about what, what would be next, um, you know, as in where do I move? Do I stay in the ski industry? Do I get a real job? You know, there was, I think everybody goes through a very tricky time. Um, and I see a lot of our athletes now who, you know, they struggle from that transition to find out where they move on to next and you know it's your whole identity when it, it's something that you've done your whole life and that's all that you've been really interested in it so it's a really tough time to sort of think about what could be next and uh with the grom camps actually it was uh, it was my, my my now wife vanessa who saw me working at the free ski camps and saying you know you you are very good at doing this you know you, you are managing it you are you know, you're doing a lot of the organization side, you know, you're picking talent, you know, you're working with ski companies to show them who who the new future stars are. So why don't we set up our own free ski camps within the UK around all the dry slopes um, and the indoor centers? And at the time, there was uh, lots of going on, lots of stuff going on in the ski industry. We had the AIM series, which was now the British Ski Tour, run by Spencer Claridge and Stu, uh, Stu Brass. And uh, there was more kids getting involved in it. I came up with this idea about the free ski grom camps to Solomon and they loved it. They really did. And they wanted to fully run with this. They were massively into free skiing at the time. I think they had about eight, no, seven or eight different free ride twin tip models at the time. You know, they were very well invested in this. And at the same time, they'd... Um, uh, given me the job as team manager for Solomon as well. So I was now in charge of um, uh, sponsoring the up and coming kids, uh, looking for new talent, uh, marketing side of it all. 
and Oakley did the same as well. So it was both at the same time. So I, I could take both on because they weren't in competition with each other. You know, Oakley was goggles and glasses. Solomon was the hardware equipment. And it, it just lapped over really well. And the other thing then, I, I wasn't that bothered about find, going for the athletes who were the best sort of superstars within free skiing on the UK scene. I almost had this vision of wanting to find the next talent and helping mentor them and let them naturally become the, the next big thing. And Solomon, again, trusted me to do this where, you know, that was a bold move on their side because normally companies like that just want the, you know, the, the top dog. And, uh, and I, I didn't go that direction. I wanted to pick my own team. And uh, the first skier that I um, uh, sponsored was a 12-year-old, James Woodsy Woods. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love that, you know, because um, we did, you know quite a few things together back then and i mean you know so many kids went through those those grom camps and it must be extra special you know to see some of them ending up representing you know great britain and in fact there was one event that uh, we ran as natives at the birmingham ski show back in 2007 and i called it the new breed and you were the uh, mc and you dealt with whoever was going to be uh, called into it it was just a tiny little quarter pipe and you know it's just not much to to do on it, but it was so new and it was something different. And the holiday makers, the people who were there, they just loved watching all these moves. They've just seen people doing you know, aerials for years, which I'm not saying, you know, like Lloyd Wallace and people like that. It's amazing. But just to see something a little bit uh, different. And I love watching the crowd enjoying it. And fortunately, I actually recorded a few things from that time. And I managed to find one of them on YouTube yesterday. And it's an interview with you and a 10-year-old and 11-year-old that you'd invited along for the second day. You wanted them to come along and just to, you know, ride that ramp in front of uh, everyone to demo those skills. And they were Katie Summerhays and Tyler Harding, who are both now in your free ski squad at GB Snow Sports. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, you must feel like a proud dad a lot of the time. <laughs> that, that, that explains it exactly how it is here. Yeah, a proud dad. Um yeah, they're, they're my extended family, those guys. And uh, yeah, like obviously Katie Summerhays, her sister Molly Summerhays, Tyler. Um, so many of the kids, obviously Woodsy. Um, but then we've got the likes of Pete Spate. There was James and Rob Machen. You know, so many of these guys have gone through to then not only do incredibly well on the world circuit, but represent GB at the Olympics. Many of them have won medals at World Championships, World Juniors, World Cups. It, it, it's been incredible. And I think, you know, somebody had told me, you know, back in the days when we we're at Rosendale Ski Slope, when we were running the Grams, that this is where it would end up. I would have never, ever believed them. Like our sport wasn't even in the Olympics then. It wasn't even a thing. We, we, it just was not on our radar. So the whole journey has just been incredible. Yeah, I mean, it was amazing. I re it first really sunk into me. I went along to an event, which I think was called Natural Born Riders, up at Sheffield Ski Village. And I, I think the Extreme Channel, I can't exactly remember who the sponsor was. And I could not believe how many kids were there going down to possibly the age of kind of like six years old or something like that. Some uh, kid taking the rails and things like that. And you just became, it was so obvious that there was just this real movement going on and something really exciting to be, uh, to be part of. So can I ask about how that next stage, the transition to GB snow sports came about? How did you, or when did you get that call? So 
when um, uh, my, my guys through the Solomon team uh, started really progressing well and making names for themselves on the world stage, um, very much, you know, led by Woodsy's side on there. Um, he, he started doing very well in some of the major events. He, he'd gone over to Europe, he'd done a season there, then gone over to America um, to start trying to qualify for events like the Dutar um, and other international events. Katie was only 13 um, at the time as well, and we were taking her out to lats to the European Championships. And uh, I remember she got a podium. She came third uh, in the uh, in the European Free Ski Champs. So she was making a name for herself. But the the big turning point was when we uh, we got the call for uh, to compete in the X Games, which was the European X Games in teams. And um, so Katie and Woodsy both got invited and Vanessa, my wife and myself um, took them both out there. Again, I think, you know, we, we did it as a part of our yearly holiday. We used our holiday funds to take them out there. Um, it certainly wasn't my job or I wasn't getting paid to do that. We just did it because we wanted to support them. And, and it was so exciting for me to see see my guys in, you know, the biggest event, you know, in free skiing. And uh, and Katie did incredibly well. You know, again, that was her the start of her rise on the international stage. But then Woodsy got a medal there, which was just not, again, a part of the script we never thought that would be something that would happen and and that was a big game changer and people started taking us really seriously and then saying how is this happening and um at the same time or roughly around that there was a lot of like murmurs saying that free skiing or slope style and half pipe could be included in the 2014 olympics so it was getting on people's radar and we'd have these discussions about is this good is it is it bad but um, it was a few months after that then that um, we uh, we got told that it was going to happen. That was officially going to happen. And we just got back from the first ever free ski world championships. That was in Park City in Utah, which, again, me and Vanessa had taken the team out there to go and compete. We did it off our own back. We used our own money um, and everybody did incredibly well. Um, and then it was the British Ski and Snowboard Federation at the time. And they called me and said, would you be interested in taking on the role as a head GB free ski coach for slope style and half pipe? Uh, the only thing is we haven't got any money to pay you. <laughs> <laughs> right. OK. <laughs> so it was almost like going back to when we started the Groms and the Solomon team, it was almost like, well, how do we make this work? You know, we've, we've got to try and find funds to cover my expenses, obviously to pay for our living, et cetera, as well as get these guys training and, uh, and uh, on the tour to qualify for the Olympics. And um, at the time, Snowboard, um, Hamish McKnight was doing a similar thing within uh, Snowboard as well, who had, had some very, very talented athletes on his team. And um, our athletes continued to get good results on the World Cup. So then we worked closer together to them put in a proposal for um, lottery funding with UK Sport, um, which we which we ended up getting. We got like a small amount to get ours. Well, it felt like a lot at that time <laughs> to get us going um, leading into Sochi and to see how we'd get on and then we'd review everything there. Um, Leslie McKenna also jumped on board um, as like a program manager and she'd obviously had experience within the Olympics as well. Our performance director at the time, Paddy Mortimer, again, he helped do all the paperwork and the admin to put in this proposal. And that was really the start 
of what became, you know, the first ever GB free ski team, freestyle snowboard, which we then called Park and Pipe. Um, so that's where it really started coming more professional, so to speak. Right. Yeah. And, and presumably it must have changed your life completely because, you know, you must spend in normal years a lot of your time on the road, right? Absolutely. I think um, up until from then, up until right up until the 2018 Winter Olympics, I, I was away so much. Um, and the last six months leading up to Pyeongchang, I think I was away probably around three weeks out of every month. Uh, which is really tough, you know, for Vanessa and, and for the kids and, um, I, you know, for all of us. It, it, but, you know, we all knew how important this was, you know, what could be achieved and we wanted to put everything into it. So, yeah, for those years, there was a, a lot of time on the road. Um, but again, it was just such an incredible and exciting journey at the same time. Yeah. And I mean, some of those events must have stood out. I mean, there have been some great successes, World Cup wins, World Championship wins. And Olympic medals, you know, could you pick out a highlight of the journey to date? Oh, the, the, there's been there's been so many um, that there, there really has. I I can't pinpoint just one. Uh, the the that first X Games where Woodsy got a medal, that's always going to be very special. Uh, and again, when he got the medal at um, uh, in Aspen as well, you know, everybody sort of looked at. T or the European X Games is not quite as the real deal. It was all about Aspen, mm-hmm. and uh, he ended up well. He's had multiple medals, <laughs> including a gold medal at the X Games since. Uh, but Katie Summerhays winning her first ever World Championships medal, uh, both both Summerhays winning World Junior titles, um, Maddie Rowlands winning the Youth Olympics gold medal in halfpipe, uh, yeah. Wood winning the overall World Tour, winning um, multiple World Cups, the World Championships. And and again, all of them performing so incredible. Uh, well, you know, in the Olympic Games with many top five positions. Um, <laughs> Woodsy, two top five positions, just missing out on the medals each time, but so close. Izzy Atkin with uh, our first ever free ski medal at the Olympics with the bronze in Pyeongchang. That was obviously huge. Um, there's Rowan Cheshire, got the first ever gold medal for half pipe. It, it could just go on. There's been <laughs> so, so many. Yeah, I mean, it's been amazing, isn't it? I think I read somewhere that, you know, some, uh, you know, events are particularly different. There was a big air in Boston that kind of stood out just for the atmosphere. That was a good one. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the Boston uh, Red Sox Stadium, that that was really incredible. And we used like the athletes changing rooms and everything else. Uh, yeah, amazing. Very, very cold. That was probably one of the coldest events I have ever been to. And okay. I remember... We left there and we traveled over to South Korea for our test event. So we'd flown over there and then we had this long haul flight over there. And I was so ill over that time. And I think I got ill because I'd been so cold standing around in Boston. It's all right for the athletes, you know, we're sort of like skiing and, you know, <laughs> they're, they're running around and, you know, like keeping themselves warm. But yeah, that was that was a cold event. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, for sure, I've watched you in the different Olympics, you know, the little glimpses of you when you're standing at the top of the course, just for a little word of encouragement, etc. But you're obviously standing up there the whole time throughout the event. Uh, But, you know, looking forward, you know, Beijing, we've got less than a year to go now until Beijing. There's a great squad uh, in place. But I wondered how COVID has affected training in the last year. You know, has it impacted on qualification, for example? Because I'm guessing some of the events that will have been cancelled. 
Yeah, um, it has. It's had a big impact. And um, I think over the, the last 14 months, um, it's, just, it's I, I've got to say, I think Fizz have done a brilliant job. They've run like the majority of those events, um, not in every discipline, but, you know, some more than others. But they've continued to sort of push on through the events because obviously, like you said, we've got Beijing uh, within nine months and we've got to qualify for that. I think the tough bit for us um, is that things are all very challenging. Being a athletes being based in the UK, we don't have the luxury of you know climbing out of bed and being in a in a ski resort like a lot of our competitors. So they've been able to continue to train um, and continue like nothing's really changed. With us, you know, we got we couldn't travel for such a long time, so we've had to be creative and we have had to adapt the way that our uh, that our athletes work and and train and a lot of that focus has been you know dry land training obviously but soon as the some of the uh the gates opened to get our athletes back on snow we, we've managed to do a bit i feel like we've done an incredibly good job of getting our athletes back on snow um and continue to train out over the summer um, getting them to all international events and uh, we've sort of managed our way or moved our way through this like ninjas I really feel like we have and that's down to like <laughs> the uh, the GB snow sports uh, staff the program managers um, they've done they've been working seven days a week you know night and day because everybody's in different time zones and uh, it's been really tough but I still think we've done a really good job and we've actually we've just come out of this season now with probably one of the best you know, seasons on record with regards to results across all disciplines. Um, So, yeah, we've definitely done something right. But, you know, it's not sustainable. Like (laughs) the the amount of work that's gone into it and everybody's sort of on their knees now, you know, including myself. And we're sort of, you know, running on fumes. But, you know, when we now need to reflect and deal with the aftermath of it and prepare ourselves for Beijing. But tough year. But at the same time, it's still been a successful year. Great. Well, no, that's very encouraging to hear. I mean, I think some members might be based in ski resorts like uh, Izzy and Zoe Atkin. Are they based in the States? They, they are. So they've been incredibly lucky. They're based in Park City yeah. um, and uh, they've been able to continue to to ski. where Not much really has, has affected them as it has with the likes of, say, some of our UK based athletes like Katie Omerod, Katie Summerhays. Yeah, uh, Tyler Harding. Um, you know that it's been tougher for them, um, but uh, we've got the Gherkin Schofields as well, who are based out yeah. in France. So we do have Aunt Charlotte Banks as well, also based out in France. So we do have athletes in different places that they've been very fortunate just from where they live. Yeah, and in terms of summer, then you know, in a typical summer, I would imagine that a lot of the team would be heading down to New Zealand, for example. And I'm guessing that's off the cards for this year. So will you be on glaciers in Europe? I'm, I'm pretty sure we will. Yeah, at the moment, just going through all the different plans, we're, we've not even put New Zealand on on the schedule at the moment because we, are, we wouldn't be allowed to go there. Um, there is talk of them running a World Cup Olympic qualification event there, which they normally do every year in September. But I'm not getting my hopes up for that. So I think... We're going to be very much using the uh, European glaciers. Uh, we did last year a lot with the Alpine guys. 
Dave Riding and the rest of the uh, Alpine World Cup crew and Europa Cup crew, they pretty much based themselves there the whole summer long. And as we said earlier on, it's such an amazing place. You know, for, for me, we sort of get quite a lot of what we need there anyway. Um, we're still using Teens Glacier as well, Ledders Alp. Um, you know, we're, we're so lucky that we've got access. Uh, the next big challenge that we're dealing with, this is a real, real tough one. And we, everybody thinks COVID's been tough, but one of the other things that's equally as tough is Brexit, because mm. then we've got the, we're limited to the 90 days of what yeah. we can do. And, for, you know, us as uh, for our athletes and our coaches, you know, that's a real problem, real problem. So, but we're, we're figuring ways around it and we will, just like everything else, we'll deal with it and take it in that stride. Great. Well, you know, I wish you all the best for the summer. I mean, you've mentioned a whole number of uh, names uh, that you've mentioned who are medal prospects. You know, Charlotte, Charlotte Banks uh, clearly, you know, is a world champion at the moment. You know, Woodsy's had a couple of top five results before, you know, Izzy Atkins, a previous medal winner. I know it's almost impossible to answer this, but what do you think a realistic medal tally could be for Beijing 2022? <laughs> um, I, I, I really, really never feel comfortable with sort of like putting a ne- amount of medals, you know, on the table and saying this is what I think we could get. But um, Beijing, I feel, is going to be a very, very different games um, than what we've had previously. And for many reasons, um, mainly due to COVID, we're not going to get any test events there. We're not going to be able to go over there and experience competing in Beijing before the, uh, the Olympic Games. It's all going to be done on artificial snow. It's all going to be done on artificial hills. Everything about it is pretty much artificial. Um, so we're going into the, the very much the unknown. The Chinese have been uh, training there for the last year in all Olympic venues. That gets into trouble for saying this, but it, but it's the truth. You know, they, they have. So they have got like, you know, there's definitely an unfair advantage of just that alone. Um, but, it, but it is what it is. Um, and to me, I just look at it as like another event. We go there like we do every event and we do our best to smash it. And I feel right now with this team across all disciplines from GB Snow Sport, we're, we're in a better place or we're more podium competitive with more disciplines than ever before. We've got a very, very strong cost country team. We've got a very strong Alpine team, uh, a very strong new up and coming mogul team. Although I see their full potential of being really released in 26, 2030. And then obviously our free ski and uh, freestyle snowboard teams are, are hugely stacked there. We've got the current world champion uh, within Charlotte Banks from Snowboard Cross. So there's just a lot of opportunities, you know, but like with the games, you can go there and you can just be damn unlucky sometimes. You know, you just never know what's going to happen with the winter sports. And that's what makes it so exciting at the same time. But what we try and do is just make sure that we're at that level where we can be podium competitive and we go there and we do our absolute damn best to sort of put it down. And uh, that's what we'll continue to do in Beijing. Yeah, well, uh, all the best for that. I mean, it's clearly such a strong team because there's other people you haven't even mentioned, like Kirsty Muir, who I'm pretty sure is only like 17 or 18 still at this stage, right? She's had World Youth Games medals. Uh, and Zoe Atkins is Izzy Atkins' younger sister, is that right? 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, two two bre- very big names to sort of bring up there. You're absolutely right. Um, yeah, with with Kirsty, you know what what an incredible year that she's she's had, and uh, her performance level now is she's right up there. She worked incredibly hard. She's only yes, Kirsty's only sixteen and sixteen. Uh, 16 um, works with a, a good friend of mine um, who was at the New Breed competition as well, Joe Tyler. Oh yeah, um, he's uh, he, he coaches her as well and uh they've, they've done a great job and to see her yes to sixth place at the world championships and uh her first podium at world cup obviously a medal at the youth uh, olympic games as well so uh, again she, she's right up there and zoe atkin um absolutely um third at the world championships second in the world cup and far for the x games uh younger sister of uh, uh izzy atkin she's another hot prospect as well so how old is zoe Zoe is a 17. Yeah, okay. Yeah, both young. Can I uh, just, uh, you know, we could talk about the athletes all day. I won't go through them one by one. But one thing you said earlier did um, strike a chord with me. You mentioned about that transition that you had when you stopped being a professional athlete. You had to think what to do next. And earlier on, you mentioned uh, Rowan Cheshire. And Rowan Cheshire, tremendous talent. You know, I think she won gold uh, in the half pipe at the World Cup first female British athlete to do so she was in a top 10 at Pyeongchang but she had some bad accidents you know along the way and I think that she made that decision which must have been really difficult to hang up her skis so to speak yes there's you know it there's a there is a couple of sad stories it's it's always really sad when an athlete has to almost is forced to retire um, not because they want to, they're, they're faster due to injury or complications. And um, I felt um, Rowan's transition of what she's moved on to, I mean, I'm so incredibly proud of what, how she's actually handled that. She did have some bad crashes um, and dealt with some serious trouble with concussion, which is, which is really scary, as we know. And, you know, we're, we're constantly learning more about that, you know, daily. You know, we're, we're, I have a, conco- uh, have a concussion, I have a conversation about this with somebody daily, you know, and about how we can be better in this area. And we've actually got a whole team dedicated to just our protocols with athletes when they're going through concussion. And um, Rowan had a bad crash in the 2014 Winter Olympics uh, in training. And I remember I spent a couple of days uh, with her in in a hospital in Sochi, and she re- she came back well. Um, she did recover well, um, but then had another one, and it and it triggered complications that she had to deal with. And um, she she was amazing. She continued to do very well. She still got top eights at the uh, World Championships and the 2018 Olympic Games, but then really realised it, it was time to sort of call it a day. She didn't want to risk anything else anymore. And uh, she's now at university in Manchester and doing really well for herself. She's in a, in a good place and uh, we do miss her on the team. But um, that's how she had to start looking about how she moved to the next stage. Um, and we've got other athletes who are continuing to do that as we speak as well. So uh, it, it's not easy. But again, I feel that we've got a duty as well to try and help our athletes in the best way, whether they're transitioning off to something totally different or even transitioning to a different 
like maybe even a coaching role or something within the organization you know we, we've got uh, to do our best to help support them move on to the next level yeah well i mean i think that just underlines uh if anything that the skill levels are so high at this at this at this level uh and it can be you know a dangerous sport people are throwing themselves through the air uh, and it's getting more and more complex uh, the whole time um so you know, when people are watching that, think about all the hours and hours that go into training. I'd just like to finish off uh, with something I spotted when I was doing my research. Um, it's about uh, someone who's not an athlete. Well, I wouldn't say she's an athlete yet, but maybe she will be in the future called Ella Hall, based down in Chichester. I understand she wrote you a letter and it ended up uh, turning into a bit of a surprise for her. Yeah, yeah. So, uh um she she wrote a lovely letter um and sent it to the uh gb snowspot office in london and i just, I just remember i had a meeting there and uh when the staff came in and gave me this letter and she uh they, they were doing a school project about you know if they if they could meet somebody who inspires them or somebody that they're interested in about and if they could come to the school and do a talk on what they do and um yeah that was in Barmouth and uh close to this ski center snow tracks and I, I just thought it's obviously a long way for me um living in Lancashire but I thought you know <laughs> I'm not going to get many of these if any letters like this in my life where you've got your young girl who said that you know inspires you you know can you come and do a chat at my school I thought you know what I'm gonna do it I'm just gonna go I'm gonna go to a school and um and it was great it was great to chat chat through about what i do very much like what we're chatting about now and about my journey and and to see ella who's a who's a very good freestyle skier in her in her own right um and yeah i'm hoping to actually go and see her and some of her friends and do a bit of a coaching session soon actually at one of the dry slopes and, and i've got to say ian they are still now some of my favorite things to go and do to go and coach yeah. the youngsters at the dry slopes you know with the younger ones coming through like the gram camp days and teaching people who've never done freestyle to learn their first tricks to me i still get probably a bigger buzz from doing that than sometimes being at you know world cup or an olympic games i, I really cool. do. I love you know that, i think i think that is a really good note to to close on because i think it indicates you know that you're very generous with your time you know you've you've um, nurtured all of these people all the way through and you're still very in contact with the core so i'd really like to thank you for your time today pat i know you're a very busy guy and you don't have much time for interviews so i really appreciate it and i want to wish you and your family and all the team all the best for uh, beijing uh and thanks very much for joining us ian thank you so so much that is the best way to start a friday morning i've really really <laughs> enjoyed that <laughs> excellent well thank you very much listener uh, to you as well for joining us and uh, if you enjoyed it i want to tell a friend about the podcast but until next time thank you and goodbye Well, I hope you enjoyed that, listener. I really enjoyed talking to Pat. It was such a pleasure to talk to him and to find out a little bit more about his career and all the great prospects that Team GB have for the next Winter Olympics. Uh, it took a bit of time putting it together, recording it, etc. It really is like a labour of love. So if you enjoyed the podcast, just a quick reminder that if you want to, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash the ski podcast. Uh, I don't drink coffee. I'll convert it into a cup of tea. But uh, any cups of teas of any description are always very welcome. Thanks very much.